How do you bring MedTech to market? My name is Karen Brown and I'm your host. On MedTechRx, you'll hear from the experts, people who have worked for us, people we've worked with, and the people we see advancing MedTech innovation. I don't have to tell you this is a complex industry. I know because I've lived it. After receiving my PharmD and working on clinical trials in academia, pharma, and a global med device CRO, I'm building my own firm. Tune in and enjoy. Today we're speaking with Rose Weinstein, Vice President of Clinical Affairs at MoxiMed. MoxiMed just brought their implantable shock absorber to market in April 2023, and Rose has her hands full preparing for post-market clinical studies. Prior to joining MoxiMed in 2018, Rose spent over five years as a clinical research associate and then joined NeoTract as the manager of clinical affairs. Welcome, Rose Weinstein. It's so great to have you here. I hear that you have been recently promoted to Vice President of Clinical Affairs at MoxiMed. Congratulations. Thank you. Super exciting. Yeah, I'm so excited to dive into all the work that you've done in the last five years since you've been joining MoxiMed and working and really leading their clinical affairs arm. And just before we get to that, do you mind giving us a little bit of a background on MoxiMed and the implantable shock absorber? Yeah, sounds good. So MoxiMed is a company that came from ExploraMed, which is a medical device incubator, which is kind of how I think I found my career into different ExploraMed companies. So Anton Clifford, one of the founders of MoxiMed, developed with ExploraMed a product that's now the implantable shock absorber. And they did quite a bit of research on this product. So prior to me joining at MoxiMed, they had been running multiple clinical trials, pilot studies, really trying to get the device right and understanding the exact patient population for the device. And so they had run a lot of clinical trials and we were able to come with the product that was ready for the market, ran the pivotal study, and they just recently got FDA, or we got FDA market authorization on April 10th, 2023, so just a couple months ago, and are really excited. We're expanding and launching commercially, and just recently had the first couple of subjects treated commercially, so very exciting times in the orthopedic niece space. Yes, definitely. I saw that post that you've implanted in your first commercial cases. So that's very exciting. Congratulations. Tell me a little bit about how the implantable shock absorber is is really transforming the industry and how it changes treatment options for OA, osteoarthritis. Yeah, so there is a real big unmet need for patients that have mild to moderate osteoarthritis, but yet aren't ready or don't want to yet undergo a knee arthroplasty, and that could be a partial or total knee replacement. Either patients are too young or just not ready to have that next joint replacement surgery. And so this allows a patient to have what's a little bridge to arthroplasty, but an alternative to a treatment like an unloader brace, but it's like a permanent unloader brace in their knee before they have to go on to a knee arthroplasty. So it just gives them another option to prolong potential arthroplasty. Perfect. Yeah, that's great. I think there's such a huge need there where patients aren't ready. They just think that 
getting that replacement is it feels so heavy and it is it's a big surgery and so having that option to go in and do a little bit less less of a invasive thing is really great for all those patients that are yeah, struggling with neoa and it actually it's not just for the patients but it's for the surgeons also surgeons tell us all the time that they would turn patients away because they did not want to destroy the knee by having a knee replacement too early or not allow the patient to be active in their later years should they have had a, a knee replacement when they were not ready or too early. So surgeons now feel like they are able to provide the patients another option instead of turning patients away, which in the US is very hard as a surgeon to say, I don't have a treatment for you. And then patients just say, well, then I'll go to someone else. So our physicians have been giving us great feedback that they've got this unmet need and it really helps them be able to feel that they're serving their patients also. And for patients to feel like there is an option now versus what you may need later instead of having the knee replacement when you're too young or not ready. No, that makes a lot of sense. Can we go back to you joining Moxima and, and where the clinical trials were at when you first joined in 2018, I think? Yes. So in 2018, they had been undergoing an investigation internally of their product. So ran a couple of trials, both in the U.S. and in Europe, and really trying to understand what worked from the trial. From the get-go, the effectiveness data was there, and it was very obvious that this device works and that there's something here. And just trying to tweak the device on the original implants had metal-on-metal capabilities. And so really trying to move away from the generation of metal on metal together and really trying to get the device in the right format built as one product with the right patient population to make sure that it's a product that's ready for the market. So when I came in 2018, like I mentioned, they had multiple studies already under their belt, pilot studies. And I came on to help finish off the pilot study that had that was in the US, the Atlas Knee System that then led to the second generation of the device, which was called the Calypso knee system. So I was there to help say, okay, this is what you've learned from your past studies. Let's build the right study for the pivotal study that we want to use for FDA. And so initiated the Calypso clinical study. And from that, we were able to get excellent results, high quality data, with excellent sites and good participation that led us to what is now the Misha knee system, which is basically the commercial name of the Calypso knee system that was evaluated in the Calypso clinical study. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Talk me through a little bit about when you came in and you were starting to design the pivotal study and I'll bring it back for a second. In fact, even though we're a clinical research organization and we do run clinical trials, you're the first clinical affairs VP that we've had on. And so we haven't been able to dive in quite yet on MedTech RX this season about all of those factors that you're considering when you're bringing a product to market and what you need to think about when you're designing that protocol. So talk me through some of those gaps that you saw and how you transformed the protocol to make it work for this pivotal study. Yeah, so that's a great question. So when I actually took the position at Moxymed, I was kind of thinking, I love small companies. I love being able to work with cross functions and really understanding 
not just the clinical world, but the world all around clinical, which a lot of times is very heavy in R&D. And so I loved that I was coming in at a time where working really closely with Anton Clifford, the CEO, and David Lowe in R&D, really trying to understand what are the mechanics of the device? What have they learned about the mechanics of the device? And what does the protocol design have to do with the mechanics of the device? So what are different inclusion exclusion criteria and what kind of data from whatever inclusion exclusion criteria from a prior study resulted in what kind of outcome. So I came in at a great time where they were kind of doing deep dive analysis and we were able to tweak the protocol and the R&D team was tweaking the surgical technique and the design of the device to then really allow us to have a successful study. The other thing that was high on my radar is it's great to have pilot studies and the more data, the better, but shifting from that pilot level of quality to the pivotal level of quality is a big difference. So really getting in procedures and structure and compliance, 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 and documentation, documentation, documentation. So (laughs) that was what I perceive why I was brought in. And really from the beginning, I thought that you can come into a company and there's no foundation and that's great. And you can just design things, but you can come into a company that's had issues and really learn more from a company that's had issues of why. And I felt for me as a career development, learning the why versus coming in hot with my own ways and means was more valuable to me professionally. And that's why I chose to come to MoxyMed for a few other reasons. But I think then it allowed me to really hone in on key aspects of a study that you might not think about when you're starting a new study without any prior real clinical trials that I think helped me to just make sure that, okay, I bring a level of quality with the learnings from the scientific research background and put it together to run a successful study for an IDE FDA regulated study. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I want to hear more about your background. So I know you have a bachelor's in biology from University of Texas. And then it it looks like you went straight into clinical research. How did you even know that was an option? How did you decide that you were going to go down that route? So I went to the University of Texas where you'll never see this on LinkedIn, but I went to the (laughs) University of Texas as a computer science major. I came from a heavy computer science family background and soon learned, I think it was within three months that I was in at UT, I learned that that was not me. Definitely not successful. I then thought that I wanted to do pharmacy school. So I went pre-pharmacy and the University of Texas had a program where you could go three years, get accepted to pharmacy school, which I did. I got accepted to pharmacy school at the University of Texas. And then in the meantime, you can finish your degree or you can move on. My parents were a big advocate of labels. And so they wanted me to finish. I actually wanted to finish school as fast as I could and get out. (laughs) So I actually chose initially not to finish my bachelor's degree and go straight into the PharmD program. I think it was I turned 21 and my parents had gotten divorced and I was having a real struggle in life at the time. Decided I had, I was working as a pharmacy technician for like three years 
a secretary in the Longhorn Pre-Pharmacy Association, which is just this organization to really help the pre-pharmacy students understand pharmacy, get connected to different pharmacy volunteer jobs or whatnot. I volunteered at St. David's because I originally thought I wanted to go the clinic route of pharmacy instead of the retail route of pharmacy. And then I think after many experiences as a tech in different roles, I soon realized that that's not me. It's not my personality. I'm too loud. I'm not, I can't stand in one spot. So I soon realized that wasn't a good fit for me and decided to go back to the biology pathway and finish my biology degree at UT. I kept working as a pharmacy technician because I really actually didn't know what I was going to do with a biology degree. I just knew that that was the fastest path to a, to a degree from, mm-hmm. after taking all the pre-pharmacy prerequisites. And so I ended up moving to California where my parents were living at the time after they got divorced. And I went to a Stanford career fair just one of the ones that's open to all Stanford students. And (laughs) I just went just to see like, what do science jobs, what, what kind of jobs can you get with a biology degree? I ended up meeting a couple of connections that in turn got me connected to Norman Terrazona, who is a veterinarian who is actually working as the VP of preclinical at Connor Med Systems, which at the time was a startup that later got acquired by Johnson and Johnson. And he said that if I'm interested, I could come work with him and the role could be as big or small as I need the role to be. And I'd help him review protocols, inventory, different animals in the preclinical studies, help go to at the time was Lincron Labs and help understand what protocols we might need to follow there and where the different animals at different time points would be on evaluation. I very quickly learned that Formalin and I are not best friends and I cannot be in a lab. So (laughs) I decided that Norman was really a great mentor. And even five years, even like a couple years ago, I still reached out to Norman and I said, this is what issues I'm having from operations standpoint. What are your thoughts? And he's really been a great mentor, but he quickly realized that, yeah, you don't belong in a lab. And he recommended I try clinical affairs, where it's very similar in nature. You're designing studies, but around humans. And you're not necessarily in the OR room, but you are really connected with the data of the patients. And so you feel like you're making a change to the patients and the the science of whatever product or disease state it is. But you're out of the lab or the OR room, which I think is just in turn what would be a better fit for me. So through him, I started taking courses at Santa Cruz. They have a variety of different clinical affairs, designs, regulatory affairs, even programs. And I got a certificate from Santa Cruz, UC Santa Cruz extension for that. And with that, I was able to apply and transfer 
within Connor Med Systems to their clinical affairs department, worked on long-term studies, I actually took paper case report form studies, and that was my first clinical task ever, was build an EDC system and take all the paper and put it into EDC. <laughs> so those were the days where everything was paper, you would open a room and it was just trial master files categorized right. paper. And that was a really good learning experience of paper sucks. <laughs> and so through that, Connor got acquired by Johnson and Johnson and Cordis Car Cardiology was working very closely with Connor. And I realized that I needed to go to a smaller company to just get a lot more experience. One of the colleagues that I had worked with there, Patty Heavey had gone to Elixir Medical. So I just kind of followed her to Elixir Medical. And there, it was a startup of, I believe it was less than 20 employees, which oh, wow. really allowed me to start learning everything from A to Z in clinical affairs, but also the quality clinical, the regulatory clinical, the R&D clinical. And then soon after that, I had another colleague from Connor, Emily Hergenretter, and she was working with Exploramed at, at their one of their initial companies called Neotrack. And so she was like, well, come over here and kind of followed that and followed her there. And ever since I've just fallen in love with Exploramed, this device incubator, I fell in love with their mission. I fell in love with how they set up and run companies. And really, I fell in love with the type of products that they strive to bring to market and really the platform of how they bring things to market. So Neotrek then got acquired by Teleflex and the VP of regulatory clinical and quality at Neotrek, Nancy Isaac. The second I met her, she was just a mentor for life. So oh. today I still think she's the, my mentor <laughs> and she's actually at MoxyMed as well. So she had come to MoxyMed a couple years before me and I said, where are you? I'm coming. And then she said, to be honest, she said, okay, let me tell you what's happening though at this company, just to really make sure this is where you want to come. And then we talked about it and I was like, there's no better place for me to learn and spread my wings than Moctimed. And ever since I've been working under Anton Clifford, the CEO, and he really has allowed me to spread my wings and fly and really try to learn and fail and then learn why I failed and pick it back up. And so I think I've had great learning experiences because of the mentors and the ability they gave me to learn. Yeah, absolutely. That's so important to have, especially when you're transitioning so quickly. What was the biggest challenge for you moving from like clinical research associate to manager and, and now VP of clinical? I think people management is definitely the most challenging thing from that aspect is you can be very organized in your own ways. And then as soon as you have to manage people to manage studies, it just becomes a lot harder that sometimes you have to let things be managed in a different way. And it can become very hard in a clinical research world when things are very regulated. And so there are ways that you're supposed to do things, but then yet there's many ways that you can do the things you're supposed to do. So I think that was definitely the most cha challenging going into managerial role. And then I think beyond that, similarly, 
there are definitely a lot of regulations, but really understanding what the regulations mean and how you as an individual can best apply the regulations for the right reasons to the right topic, I think is the science behind running a clinical trial. And so I think I've learned that it's one thing to set up a trial master file or an EDC system and have it record data. It's another way of how you set it up and how what person has what role and how it rolls out, I think is the science behind study design. And then just how you set up the protocol and do do you use CROs? Do you not use CROs? What do you use CROs for is really the science behind the the study. So I do feel like then that was the challenge as I grew into the managerial role that became, I think, the most important critical thing for me is setting the study up right from the beginning so that you can try to think of, well, what if this and what if that? I think that a lot of my mentors are very optimistic. And so they're always like, oh, you can fix it later. And then I've always had a very pessimistic, for, for good or for bad, vision on well, what if this and what if that and what if this. And so audit ready I, mindset. Yeah, I always feel like then it's helped me to be like, okay, well, I know what to do. Okay, we've thought about that. This is why we did this. But yeah, definitely helps with the challenges. Yeah, absolutely. I've had a similar experience with transitioning towards people management because I think I was so structured as a clinical research associate or or a clinical trial monitor. And I just had my own systems and then I'd, I'd shadow someone else and I'm like, why are you doing it that way? Why can't we do it this way? But I love working with people who aren't necessarily like process driven. They they want to use their head and and really think about it. And oftentimes working with a CRA, I, I tell them or starting to train a CRA, like if it was just source data verification, anyone could do it. But you have to take the site's SOPs and you have to take all the regulations and all of the protocol monitoring plan, everything within the trial and marry it all together and make sure that it makes sense the way that everything is going. But after kind of spending some years doing management and doing clinical trials at a higher level, I went back to train a new CRA this year. And I realized that I like almost give too much freedom. Like I'm, I'm just like, well, what kind of process would work for you instead of saying, this is how I do it. And I think they needed a little bit more guidance from me even to just say, hey, I'm actually brand new at this. Can you just talk me through how you did it? And then I'll either adopt it for now and, and transform it into their own process flow or say, this makes more sense for me to do it this way. I agree. Yeah. It's interesting, though, to hear what your pathway towards clinical research when you were, and actually we had a very similar path because I ended up getting my PharmD and I was at a point finishing up my pre-pharmacy work where I was like, oh, should I really do this? Should I not? <laughs> and actually the only thing that tipped me over the edge to go finish pharmacy school was that I got pregnant with my first daughter. And I said, well, yeah. I need to have <laughs> something <laughs> where yeah. I can just make sure that no matter what in, in four years, I'll be able to just be okay and have a job where I can provide for a family. But it's interesting to hear when you were at your preclinical lab, were you working primarily on medical devices or was it both pharmaceuticals and, and medical devices? 
Yeah, good question. So to actually get a biology degree, I had to pick a focus and I picked medicinal plants. I'm not actually sure why. I just didn't really know what I wanted to do with biology. And so somehow I found myself working. And I think I liked, I had seen the labs where all the Petri dishes were growing bacteria. And I was like, ew, no, not me. And then I saw the labs where they had plants growing. And I was like, ooh, I want to go to that lab. So I did start off there. And actually what was interesting is my, I had co-authored a paper don't even know how that happened. I (laughs) really feel like my days of biology were such a blur. And that was actually what caught the attention of Norman. And he's like, to be honest, you don't really have any experience. And I'm hiring you because of your dedication and how you worked on this paper and this project. And because I literally had I never had a pet before. I didn't really know much about animals. I really had no preclinical experience or industry experience. And he's like, I'm taking a chance on you. And I was like, okay, let's do it. But that company was a medical device company. It kind of got me into medical devices through the certificate program. I was learning about the different regulations for drug versus medical device versus biologics. And I really just fell in love with medical devices. I think the mechanics of the device just intrigue me more and understanding mechanism of action. I don't know if it's because my family comes from a very mechanical engineering background and that's just why I'm more driven to that or whatnot. And then from there, it was just because my experience level had really done like dived deep into medical devices, although Connor Med System was a combination device. So it was a drug eluding stent, coronary artery stent. I just found that I like devices. I like the un- finding the unmet need for the device and the reward for a device to market or from pilot studies to market is a lot faster it feels like I'm making more of an impact. Although I bet drug does the same. I just feel like I'm a little bit like very fast paced, which is why you can't put me behind a pharmacy desk. And so I do find that my expertise has just become and evolved into medical devices and I've enjoyed it. So I don't let myself go in any other direction. (laughs) Yeah. What's the most interesting part about doing the not preclinical work, but pre-approval work and just kind of working with the R&D team from a medical device standpoint. Yeah. So that's why I will forever try to stay startup world because I love the the learnings behind you're not just taking a product and the indication for the product and the the technique of how the product works but you really know the testing behind the product you really know so after neotract i toyed with the idea and i consulted for a couple of explorer med companies while neotract was in this registry post-market world just to really understand for myself like what's next And while I was consulting for these companies, I really quickly realized that, yes, I could probably consult and give you the feedback or draft a protocol for you or write a report for you. But for me, I don't feel like I'm part of the product. I don't feel like I'm like it's not my pet. And I love feeling like I know everything 
about this product from A to Z. And then in turn, what it does is it gets me really excited about the product and then about what that possibility is. So I think I learned while I was working at Neotract and kind of supporting other ExploreMed companies that I'm probably not the right person to consult and just draft you a protocol or just draft you a report. Sure, I think I could do it and have done it, but I really like to live and breathe the product. And the reason why is because I like to see what marketing has to say. I love to see what patients have to say, what comes out of the design. R&D is like the number one reason why I am in a startup is because I really understand the device so that when I work on anything for that device, I can give it my 120% because it is like my child. <laughs> right. Um, and so then I know that I'm making the best decisions for that product. I know that that if there was something I'm missing that I could easily hone in on an engineering report or what did we learn from this testing or have we done this testing and and just being really involved at the early stages with other departments, which I feel like once products are more established, then you don't necessarily need that level of interaction with cross functions. I love working it cross functionally like that as well, though my brain's always like trying to connect the dots and kind of like a spider web of especially doing so many post-market clinical trials and thinking about it from a what regulatory pieces are we trying to incorporate into this, whether it be new indication or something along those lines. And then what market access pieces do we really need to incorporate into this so that the client can get everything that they need out of this study, but do it in a way that works for sites and and insight workflows. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's the world I currently am in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'd love to hear more about what you're thinking because we're, like you said, April 2023, you you crossed that threshold and became FDA cleared and and are in the post-approval realm. So how has that changed your role at MoxyMed? Yeah, so now shifting gears. So I think I've done this now for three companies where you work so hard on an IDE and then you get approval or market authorization. And then now you're rereading all your procedures and you're like, okay, so that's for an IDE. So now what do we need to do for post-market and tweaking things here and there to allow you to expand in a post-market setting. So really we are thinking to run many studies. So I think we're initiating In the IDE world, we had one study that took all of our resources, and now we're hoping to set up three to four studies within the next year with the same resources that we have. (laughs) (laughs) How does that play into your decision making? Can we, not to cut you off, but can we talk a little bit about where you decide to put or bring in external resources that might be short-term like a CRO or when in your position are like, no, I need to hire someone for this? set of tasks or this role? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's the science between a successful study. And that can depend and it can vary totally based off of where the company's at, what the company's long-term plans are. Is it a, how long of an endpoint is the study for FDA to review and approve a product? And then what are the risks that you might take if someone isn't extremely familiar with it 
monitoring it versus managing it versus just running the data and then trying to understand okay so at what ask, at what level can we outsource to a CRO at what level does a internal representative that really knows the history the background of the device need to be involved so for Moximed, I always felt like the internal management needed to be full-time employees. However, the monitoring didn't necessarily need to be full-time employees. And then data management is extremely expensive, as, as I bet you know. And <laughs> so that was definitely something that we outsourced for quite some time. We did come to a point where we needed, we were running data on the daily. And so then data management was getting very expensive. And so we, I decided that, okay, so we'll still leave data management outsourced, but I need someone that can really run the data on the daily and really have deep oversight on the data instead of waiting for every six months, we get an update or a report or whatnot. So I did end up hiring a senior manager of data management, Diana Lopez. We were colleagues together at Neotract and I brought her over and she's got actually a lot of medical device experience as well in data management. And we always work well together. So I brought her in to help me just keep an eye on it on a daily basis. And then we were running data left and right in many different ways that we could. And so we still had our formal analysis always outsourced. I prefer that any formal analysis is outsourced. So there is a level of control and independence there and keep the internal data reviews as just like, hey, what's going on with this patient? How is this site doing compared to this site? And then any formal analysis I do outsource. So that's just on the front of data management. CEC and in independent committees, I do like running those internally myself. But again, I can imagine where if you have more than a thousand patients, there's no way you can manage that internally. It just becomes too much of a burden. And you've got someone running that on a full-time basis, then I'm, I may look to, to outsource. But we were fortunate enough that for osteoarthritis, the patient need for to be able to show effectiveness and safety is lower. I guess you, you don't need the number of patients that you might need in like a cardiology study, for example. So mm. we were able to bring in a lot of it and manage a lot of it internally and then didn't need arrows for kind of board managements like CEC, data monitoring committees, et cetera. So, but yeah, to answer your question, I guess I think it just depends. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you gave some really helpful insight, especially for people newer in the role of a manager of clinical or a clinical study director, like how do you make those choices and how do you resource appropriately to make sure the job gets done and you're protecting internal resources when you need to and really seeing where some inefficiencies might lie if you give it to someone else. So I do think it's interesting to think about the role that you're in now and because post-market there's so much from registries and limited market releases and actual studies where you're treating it closer to an IDE and having really specific inclusion exclusion criteria. Where do you prioritize prioritize your resources from a clinical standpoint to to prioritize which data you're chasing now? Yeah, so we 
Inclusion exclusion for me, whether it's an IDE or a post-market study or even a registry is always, I think, the foundation of a study. The data can be the wrong data that you were looking for if you didn't set the right inclusion exclusion. If you were too stringent, then you might miss a population that would have given you great data or would have not given you great data and you would not know because the criteria was too stringent. But at the same time, if it's too broad, you might get an outcome that really isn't reflective of the right population for the product and the product itself in the right population. And so I do think that even in a post-market setting, you can say that it's a post-market product, but if the inclusion exclusion has too many variables where there are variable commercial products or experiences or something that happens that actually might put bias on your outcomes that can change then the data that you might see compared to what you ran in the IDE if it's not apples to apples. So I do feel like even though you go into a post-market setting, you still want a, a lot of times you want to replicate and have the same data. You don't want to have to explain why it's not the same data <laughs> or similar in nature, but then also you want to be able to say, okay, so in this same population, we also found that X, Y, and Z, and then we could say, okay, there's opportunity for new claims, or there's another unmet need that we didn't actually review and focus on in the IDE application that we need to look into. And then I love registries to allow for really to then dive into, okay, what are all the things that we didn't really have because of how the study was designed that maybe then now we can reflect on in an all-comer registry that we can say, okay, maybe we should look at a different population or maybe I can take this other population and start another study or or whatnot. But so I think the priority is the INE, and then the second priority is the anything that has to do with patient participation. So that might mean questionnaires. Are you getting enough? Are you getting too much? Do patients have fatigue? Do they, mm. are, are you not, you getting too much in physician outcomes that you're not really understanding the patient outcomes? And then also what's the experience for the patient? Are you getting enough data? Do you have high loss to follow-up that really you don't really know your data because you have too much loss to follow-up. I think that it's really the whole, the, how the patient fits into the study that oftentimes goes, goes awry. But I, I am a big advocate for follow-up compliance. And I feel as if you design a study in the right way and you have compliance from the patients, then you can have a successful study should the right product and the right procedure and the right indication and your INE be set. Yeah, absolutely. Have you ever been in a position where, and I guess maybe it's important to say, maybe your priority ends up being that the FDA cleared you, but with the caveat that you have to run a post-market study. So what the FDA is looking for might take priority over these, but these are fantastic points to think about when you're entering that post-market space. Have you ever been in that position where the FDA asked for a specific post-market study to explore something? 
No, actually I've not. So I've always worked in situations where they're not really full PMA studies. And so recently, I say recently, but it was actually a couple of years ago, but that's recent. <laughs> there have been, there's a new guidance document to support post-market studies or post-market surveillance of products for medical devices, not just for PMAs. So I think this is a newer thing, which I'm not, I don't think it's a bad idea. I think it's actually a great idea. I think that you can, this is not even an FDA thing, but you can run studies in an IDE setting where there's so much control and then it goes to the market and it just, it can change. And so I feel like running a post-market study would behoove any company regardless of mandated or not mandated by FDA. But I think the phenomenon of running it for non-PMA studies is a newer phenomenon. So I know that in the orthopedic group, when we were requested to do it, we were like, okay, so what have others done? And it was like, oh, wait, there haven't been really been many others. This is a new thing. Yeah. So, okay, so what do we ask ourselves? And what does FDA want to see? And really what it is, they want to see long-term data. And that's what it is. It's long-term safety and effectiveness. They have the data. They were able to evaluate and review the data through two years. The Calypso study was a two-year composite endpoint that had safety and effectiveness and one composite, meaning that it was five components. A patient had to meet all five components to be deemed a success. And the components were different components, two of them were effectiveness components, and then three of them were safety components. So by being a success in the study, you had met both safety and effectiveness in multiple factors and ways. And so I do feel like to FDA's goal and really to the goal of really any regulation at the or regulatory committee at this point is making sure that, okay, that data that we approved, then long-term, how does it impact the market? And I'm really excited about this because I feel like we may, we had great outcomes at two years, but I think our stories, and we have a couple of stories that have been posted on LinkedIn and, and Facebook and whatnot, YouTube, but mm -hmm. these are stories from patients that had early, early devices implanted in early clinical trials. They are 10 plus years out and they're telling their story about how they still have the device in and how it's changed their life. And yes, we are not going to get that in a two-year endpoint study. So this is really cool and really good feedback. And even the most, the latest pilot study, which was run in the US, it's the Atlas clinical study. We have patients that are now, even though that study was not the product, it needed additional work and it was tweaked then to make the Calypso knee system. But even that product, there are patients that are now five plus years out and hearing their stories is what makes that long-term data very important to understand as well. And so I'm a big advocate and fan for post-market studies, not just because it might seem like job security, but really because I do feel like it finishes the story of the product. And I'm a big advocate for data. I think that data is what physicians need. These days, patients need the data just as much as physicians need the data. And for good or for bad, everyone is Googling and trying to understand 
what disease or what data, what it means for them. So I think we are working to put data out in many different ways possible for the patients, for the physicians, and continue to report and collect data. So if that's in the post-market study to support FDA, in a registry to support all physicians and just the commercial world that's out there, then I'm um, an advocate of more data. <laughs> more data. We love data. <laughs> no, I totally agree with you. I think it, it's so meaningful to get innovation to market and to provide those options to patients. But I think it's so important to take some accountability and just responsibility for what does that patient's life look like? 10 years down the road even, but five-year data, that's great. That's fantastic yeah, to hear about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I actually thought that FDA might want that data, but it turns out, no, they want the five-year data in a post-market setting. So we're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. At least you have your North Star right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it'll be very exciting as that data comes in, just to see how it evolves. And just my experience at Neotract is that the data just got stronger and stronger. So I expect and hope that's gonna continue with the MoxiMed device and data and the stories will just keep coming in. And a lot of times in an IDE setting, our VP of marketing, Keith Fong, is always asking me, okay, can I do an interview? Can I do it? I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Stay away. <laughs> but now it's gonna be awesome because the commercial patients, they're, the, I think their voice will shine and it'll come out in many different aspects through the institutions, the hospitals, the clinics, or even just the patients themselves. So this is really where it gets exciting with the patients telling their story and what the data means from their perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you've had such a wonderful career already, not to say you're done by any means, but what advice do you give to people who might be interested in entering clinical research? There's so many inroads to it, and I don't think anyone has the same exact story on how they, they got there, but I think it's interesting to hear about the certification that you got and, and working in the preclinical realm and, and transitioning over. What advice do you have for people who, who see this industry and are really intrigued by it and interested in being part of bringing innovation to market and getting that data that we're so interested in? How do they get to where you are today? Good question. I do think that the, although it's not how I got my first job, I think the the most important thing is just get your hands dirty and get your foot in the door. But it's very hard these days to do that. And I do think that I was somewhat fortunate, even though I went through preclinical to get to clinical, I was fortunate that I had just sometimes, I think, just been in the right place at the right time or just kept trying to search and not just stayed at home on the internet trying to apply to jobs, but actually actively got out there to try to find out like what jobs are there and what can I do? But I do think that the certificate programs, and there's a lot of different programs out there. There's MAGI, there's so many different conferences too that you can earn credits through. And I think that those conferences, even I learn in person. So some people can just take webinar classes and learn, but I'm very hands-on, I need to interact. But I feel like those are excellent. And even just by doing those certificate programs or going to those conferences, you'll meet people 
And it just might be a matter of making the right connection. But the key behind those is just learning the foundation. I've never actually worked at a large company. So I've actually never had a large company be like, this is clinical research 101. No, <laughs> it's more like, do this, do that, do that. Okay, wait, why? Let me understand it. Let me figure out why are you asking me to do X, Y, Z? Because, you know, in the startup world, you're not going to have a manager that's going to be the regulations state that uh, da, da, da. that's why I'm asking you to do da 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 da. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I do feel like those courses are very valuable so that then when you actually get the opportunity to have experience, you not only know why, but you know how and why. So you might be asked to do something, but because you know how and because you know why, you're going to be able to reciprocate a better response or document or whatever it might be. I used to hire science backgrounds. And I think that's just because I felt like this is a field of science and I have a science background. So in turn, there are people that are interested in science and you kind of have to know medical lingo and what might be in source records or whatnot. I've actually learned through my experience that that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. And I just need to find the right person with the right passion that has done their homework. And that might not mean that they had a science background, maybe they had a communication background and they're a great communicator. And that sometimes might work out better to communicate with sites and physicians and whatnot. So I've slowly gone away from what's your degree to what is your experience? And if you don't have experience and you're looking to just get your foot in the door, what have you done to try to get experience in clinical and what do you know and how do you know it? And I think that just tells me where their drive is on trying to grow in clinical research. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny to think about because I always talk about how I think pharmacists would be the best monitors ever just because of the way their brain works. I'm like, I'm a pharmacist. I'm the best ever, of course. <laughs> I think back on it and I'm like, how did I really get into this? And I had to be willing to have a doctorate level degree, but also just go down get my hands dirty. I remember I have pictures of me like set, hooking myself up to an EKG machine, one of those where you have to send a test report to the central lab and just doing all of the clinical research coordinator level work to just get my hands dirty and really understand what clinical research meant from an industry-sponsored study standpoint because it's so different than academia. And I think that it's just important to note that there are so many opportunities out there in the field is is such that we need really great people and don't be afraid to go take a year and get your hands dirty and go hook yourself up to a EKG machine if you need to learn how to be a coordinator and how to work in this field and what this field even means because I don't think we have a lot of visibility outside of it. I definitely agree. Well, thank you so much for your time, Rose. It was so great to have you on here. I, I know that you've talked a lot about your career path and, and everything that you went through to get to where you are today. I heard you speak a lot about having great mentors. Maybe we can end the show with you just talking a little bit about your advice to people when it comes to finding those mentors and fostering those types of relationships. Yeah, that's a very good point. I feel like never be afraid to ask questions or to go to 
a higher management, even if that's not your direct supervisor. I think that have a very open relationship. And I, what I mean by that is really tell your direct supervisors or even higher management, like where you're struggling and where you feel like you need, to, you feel like you don't know enough and you want to learn more, where you feel like you know something and you want to try something because that's how they will allow you to grow, but also they'll get to know you better. They'll get to know what you're looking for. And then as things come up, they'll have you in mind to be like, you know what? I know you said this. Why don't you try this? And I think that's the best way to really understand your supervisors and those above you and really learn from them. And I think that's the thing is you're probably smarter than them in some ways, but there's a lot to learn from them. So really just reach out in any aspect of ask questions, tell them what you're interested in and just be open to grow.